an A&E original podcast. Ooh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You Can we cut her mic? Hey, Mickey. Can we cut her mic? Hey, Mickey. Can we turn this Mickey? off? Or is it Ricky? Is it Mickey it's or Ricky? It's Mickey, but girl, what? Kirby Dixon, and with me today is my favorite co-host, Amira Lawali. If Amira had an alter ego, it would be named Your Royal Highness. Because little did I know, <laughs> sis has been a princess since the very beginning. Been born royalty. <laughs> royalty, royalty, royalty. And if Kirby Dixon had an alter ego, it would be the ringleader. Because she's always getting things done. She's the person moving everything around. The sweetest spring leader there is. Whip y'all into shape. <laughs> okay, you know I have to ask this question every week. How are you, my friend? Girl, I am good this week. And that is because we had to put on our power suits and pull a seat up to the <laughs> negotiating table. And we advocated for ourselves in a way that we never have before. So shout out to us. I am so happy you're proud. I love that for you. Uh-oh, why for me and not for you? Because I just, I think negotiations, it's a lot of Black women have problems and issues and with negotiating. It's hard. It's hard to tell people your worth if they can't see it. And it's hard, especially when you're in entertainment, because you feel like it's a gift, like it's a prize to be there. So I think I learn every week to push the boundaries a little mm-hmm. more and it's okay for me to ask what I deserve. Like I can hear my inner Yonce saying, yeah. do it, do it. Yeah, I totally hear that. I, and I think, you know, for me, I'm proud of us because I've never done this for myself before, let alone never. another person that I think deserves the same because I've never known how. I think kind of like you're saying, black women don't get the same tools that our white male counterparts get. We don't have the audacity to ask for the things that I think we should. And doing that this week gave me the little bit of empowerment that now that I got it, I'm never giving it back. That's what I need to get to. I think it's helped because a lot of people, a lot more people than I thought saw what we were pushing for and agreed with Mm -hmm. us. So they kind of like showed a light through the path and was like, it's okay. Say what you need. Say what you deserve. Right. But also isn't like, finally, finally that happens. Like you ask for something, people see the work that you're putting in and the product that you're pushing out. Yeah. And they agree. Now, if only every negotiating table could look like this. (laughs) (laughs) And you know who was the perfect person to talk about navigating the side of working in media? Let them know, girl. Sean Robinson. Sean! You know her as the host of 90 Day Fiance, her 16, 16 16-year run on Access Hollywood, and most recently, she's stepping into the executive producer role for the Seven Deadly Sins movies on Lifetime. We talked to her about a lot. We talked to her about being Black women in media, what it means to be an active ally, 
active, not performative, y'all, <laughs> and how she's handling the seat of power now that she's an executive producer. Sean Robinson, let's get into it. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Okay, first off, you look beautiful. So good. <laughs> We've had people on before and they looked great, but like you came on and I was like, <gasps> there was a glow. There was absolutely a glow. <laughs> Ladies, that's so sweet of you. Um, I, it's a pleasure to be with you today. We're so excited to have you. And we ask every guest the same question because this last year has been so difficult. It's been so hectic. And we want to know, how are you? How are you really? How are you doing right now? So thank you for asking. You know, I have been having so many conversations with my friends about what this last year plus has been like for us. I remember when Los Angeles went on lockdown, it was a Thursday. And I said, you know what, let me, let me go get my nails done. <laughs> so my nails will last for two weeks and we'll probably be in the house for like two weeks. And then when I come out, I'll go get my nails done again. And we were thinking at that time that we were going to be, you know, locked down maybe, you know, two, two and a half weeks, something like that. And I think if somebody had told us that it was going to be over a year, I don't know what we would have said. But now looking back, I think about how far we've come. And when you ask me the question, how am I today? I am more in touch with my mental health today than I was a year ago. I am more conscious about what I'm letting into my spirit than I was a year ago. Some days I get like, oh, okay, I'm overwhelmed. And I've learned now that it's okay to take a break. And a year ago, I did not think it was okay to take a break. Like on a Tuesday, or a Thursday at like 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, I had to be go, 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 go. If I was down and just kind of chilling, I would think, wow, Sean, you're being a schlep right now. You need to go. <laughs> yeah. I'm giving myself permission. If I want to lay down on the sofa at 10 o'clock in the morning during the weekday, I'm giving myself permission to do that. As you should. Which is not what I did a year ago. Yeah, I feel like it's more important now more than ever to listen to that voice in your head. And taking a break is more important now more than ever. I've realized that myself the past few weeks, too. Like, there are days where I just need to take a day off. There's no reason. I have no obligations. There's no vacation I want to go on. But I need it. Yeah. And for everyone to listen and understand and trust me when I say, I need a day off. Off. <laughs> yeah, I need to breathe. Yeah. I was reflecting on this the other day too. And I think I call it like chapter 85 of quarantine is what, is what we're in now. And I think it was like- Girl, how do you know 85 though? You know what? I don't know. My calculations, I feel like we're on chapter 85. I feel like we're on novel number three. Please Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. trilogy. <laughs> I was reflecting on it. And I'm trying to remember what point of quarantine I was in where I was like, I need a break mentally. And mm-hmm. I was like, it clicked, oh, I'm never going to go back to normal. 
So like at what point of quarantine did it click for you that like, oh, my mental health is number one. Like I need to put me first now because there's so many stages. Yeah. And I, you know, as I was saying, I did not think this way a year ago and it really has been only recently with the conversations more about mental health that I have allowed myself to say, you know what, that includes me too. Because as a journalist, I'm so used to talking about other people's stories and what other people are going through. And I had to realize, Sean, you're going through this too. So it's okay for, you know, this new normal of yours to be When I am feeling overwhelmed, I'm just going to relax. I'm going to read a book. I might just sit out on my deck and do nothing at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is okay. After living all of these years, if I'm taking a day off during a week, it's not going to make a difference at this point, you know? So it's probably really only been recently that I have really thought about what this time has meant to my spirit and being more protective of my spirit. Oh, that's great. Well, we're going to get into your origin story for a bit, but I do have to admit something. If I don't bring up 90 Day Fiance, all my group (laughs) chats will kick me out. They'll kick me out. I know. Yes. Go ahead. What question would you like to ask? Okay. I have many. I'm going to dwindle them down because we have to talk to you about you, but this is your fangirl moment. This is my fangirl moment. I'm going to take it. This is what you get. Just one. I know. Just one. It will let go. We're huge fans. Yes. And I was wondering, because we're digging deep into you yesterday, like you are part of like so much. So I'm wondering personally, sometimes when I watch a show, I love it, but I'm like, is that dynamic healthy? So is that that dating dynamic healthy? So are there any relationships where you were just like, oh, girl, get out. Let me rescue this girl. Oh, yes, absolutely. Or boy. Let me rescue this guy. Sorry to this man, but I'm going to save this girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There have been many. Uh, there have been people when I've been told that they were appearing on the next tell all. I was thinking, oh, wow, they're still together. And just that the relationship has continued. Or I might say, oh, my goodness, are they back together? It's been astounding. And I get a lot of behind the scenes details, obviously, that the audience doesn't get. Yeah, And so I know even more about what's going on in the relationship. So yes, it has astounded me, some of the couples that stay together. But do I tell them that? No, Perhaps. no you know, because they, you know, listen, my, my job is to find out the why, not necessarily tell them that girl, I think it's fun. <laughs> I know, but Sean, you eat them up. Like, I, like <laughs> you, like, you ask questions that we're all wondering. You eat them up. You don't let them free. I'm always like, yes, read Tell them. them what they need to hear. Yes, it is time. You know, thank you very much. And I don't know if you ladies, hopefully you ladies have seen Bears All, because it's quite a different show than the tell-all. And in the tell-all, I'm more in the journalistic role. My role is to be the listener and to give them the chance to tell their story. Then on Bears All, we can get a little loose and fun. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, you, I think you need to run. So it's a different role that I have on both shows. And, you know, I got to tell you, I spent uh, 16 years at Access Hollywood. And when PLC asked me to do 90 Day Fiance, 
I thought it was just kind of going to be like a one-off and, you know, I had no idea that the show was going to be create a world at 68 countries and territories. I never expected that in my entire life. So it's been quite a journey to get DM. You should see my DM. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sean, what's the craziest things you've gotten in your what DMs? Diving into those DMs. Yeah. Just like DMs from, you know, Nigeria, from Italy, from Spain. I mean, wow. all around the world. And so that's been, or, you know, I might see people, uh, like this one guy I was, you know, pre pandemic, I was valet parking my car and the valet said, Oh, my family said, he said, my family's from Morocco. They love 90 day. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's, it's all literally all over the world. So it's been quite a journey. We stand a global queen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just going to rip the bandaid off, Sean, and let you know, this podcast is a brainchild of myself and Amira, and we've had a lot of incredible guests on so far. We've been very fortunate in that way, but our favorite is when we get to talk to Black women and to be able to pick the incredible brains of Black women and highlight you guys and celebrate you guys and get really deep. So we plan to go there today. <laughs> yes. Okay. Go ahead. I'm ready. We're also black women in media. So we relate to you in so many different ways and yeah. learning more about your journey and how you got started in this industry was something that we're like, okay, yes, been there. Yes. Done this. Yes. Seen this. Yeah. So we do want to get a little bit of your origin story though. Getting into the media landscape as black women can be really, really tough. We're not given the same tools as other people. So for you, how did you get in? So thank you for that. And yes, uh, no matter what generation I'm talking to, whether it is a woman from when I was growing up watching TV, or if it's from the younger generation, like you ladies, many of the stories that we tell are the same. And our experiences have been the same um, in different situations. So how I got in is, well, let me go way back. Okay. So when I was, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, when I would come home from school, sometimes I would stay over at my grandmother's house because my elementary school was close to my grandmother's house in Detroit. And after I watched my cartoons, my grandmother would turn on the evening news. And there was a, an African-American woman by the name of Beverly Payne. And she was the, I think the first Black female anchor in the state of Michigan. Okay. This is, this is going back a long time ago. Yeah. And I remember looking at her and I was little and I remember thinking, just mesmerized by her and thinking that she was different because she looked like me. I didn't see the other Black women on TV at all, any other Black females. And so I was just mesmerized by her and she Mm -hmm. just thought she was just so you know, in my little, my little mind at that time, I was like, oh, this woman is so beautiful. She's so regal. She was like this queen. And uh, I never met Beverly Payne, but she was the woman who start started me on the path to becoming a journalist. And so one of my first jobs was when I was at Spelman College in Atlanta. Yeah. Shout out to Spelman. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Spelman. <laughs> I was chosen to host a talk show on cable TV. Now this isn't HBO cable. This isn't, you know, Andy Lifetime cable. <laughs> this is Wayne's World cable, like channel 
2017 in Atlanta. This is cable like that. So I was hosting this talk show. And then in between my junior and senior year at Spelman, I went home to Detroit and I worked at a very small independent black owned station in Detroit called WGPR. And that's where I learned how to write, report, and edit. And then after I graduated from Spelman, I went back and I interned again. And then finally they put me on the payroll. So those, that was my well, my first job when I was on uh, you know, I was on TV in my hometown. So that was cool. And that is where I honed my skills once again in writing and producing and editing, things like that that gave me the foundation of being a journalist. So that's how, that's really how it all started way back in the day. That's amazing. I love hearing everyone's origin story because everyone has like a different way of how they got to where they were. And it's like, oh, how can I either mirror that? Like we're, Kirby and I are now, like we're in the mirroring phase of like picking our next step. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. (laughs) We appreciate that. Yes. And, you know, I spent, before I came to what we call the national stage, after, in terms of my journey, I was there in Detroit for about four years. And then I went to Flint, Michigan. And I was an anchor and reporter in Flint, Michigan. And I was, my news director let me go after telling me I didn't have what it took to be in TV. Wow. Mm. Yes. And so... Little do they know that's all you need. <laughs> I know. You need a good hater to catapult <laughs> you to the top. That's all you need. And then after that, I you know, started like sitting out, I was sitting out resume reels and I went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was the medical reporter. I was the weekend anchor and I started hosting a talk show called Milwaukee's Talking. Mm-hmm. And from Milwaukee... <laughs> I went to Austin, Texas. Oh, I love Austin. Yeah, Austin's a great city. And I was a reporter and anchor there at a startup uh, television station in Austin, the CBS affiliate. And then I went to Miami. I was at the Fox affiliate in Miami, WSBN. And that's where I really honed my live skills. Because in Miami, they used to put us on the anchor desk. And we would have to... They would take some live video of like a house fire. You know, nobody hurt, no injuries, no nothing. And we'd have to ad lib over the house fire for about three hours. And so oh like after gosh. the second hour, you're like, okay, if you're just joining us, we are still over this house fire uh, in Miami. Looks like a very hot fire. Uh, <laughs> as we uh, as we've said, there are no injuries, no fatalities, so that is good. So um, you know, we will keep you updated on this throughout the day, and that's how it was over and over again. And so I just got after at one point, I just got just tired of the fires and the car crashes and the murders and covering all that. And I said, I really want something that is different. I'd love to do entertainment. And at that time, there weren't entertainment show there there was entertainment tonight and that's it and I remember telling you know colleagues and my agents that my agent that I wanted to do a show like entertainment tonight and they would always tell me they're showing there are not enough positions for black women mm-hmm. don't try to go out for jobs like that there aren't you know you, you will not make it and my agent discouraged me my colleagues discouraged me everybody was discouraging me saying there weren't the opportunities and I kept pushing kept pushing yeah pushing. And then finally, Access Hollywood saw a tape of mine, and they called me out for an interview. And that's when I was the new anchor. 
at Access. Wow. What do you do when your agent says there's not space for you as a Black woman in entertainment? Like, what do you say to this person? And how do you quiet that noise when you know that's not true? Yeah. And at the time, I was afraid to speak up. So what I did is while my agent was sending out my tapes to local news stations, Mm -hmm. I was putting a tape together and sending them off to other, like they had, they would have these talent banks and I would send my reels to the talent banks on the side and say, I'd like to do a show like entertainment tonight, send it to entertainment tonight. And remember back then, this was in, I came to Access Hollywood in 1999. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is before podcasts. This is before Twitter, Facebook, social media, none of that existed. And so when you were talking about a national show, you were really talking about a national show at that point there, it wasn't a global society like we are in now. And so the view of what black women could do was very limited because they didn't see any other black women. And I remember there was a Lisa Cannon was on Entertainment Tonight years ago. And I would always look at her. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This woman's here. And, and but they were telling me, you know, there are not enough jobs. Don't go out. And so I was kind of secretly pushing my job, you know, pushing my reels to these talent banks and also applying for entertainment news jobs, yeah. which were very, very like back then. I think like extra wasn't doing entertainment news back then. E was not a player uh, Mm -hmm. during that time. It was a very, very different time than it is today. Very limited choices. And to be able to break through that ceiling was huge for me at the time. You're in a space now where even at the time you're saying there weren't anyone really that looked like you or the people even around you that were supposed to be lifting you up and find new opportunities for you. We're saying, don't go this route. It doesn't exist. There's not going to be enough opportunities for you as a Black woman in front of the camera in the national space. So I'm wondering, how did you give yourself the skills to also push forward your own personal goals that you knew you wanted to be in the front of the camera? You knew there was a space for someone who looked like you to be in front of the camera, but also pushing out like these professional goals that other people had set for you that weren't necessarily in alignment with what you wanted to do? Yeah, it was tough because I got no's from the people that I wanted to support me, the ones that I wanted to give me a yes. I've learned throughout my career, you know, sometimes there's no support system. Sometimes it's just you and your grind. Okay. (laughs) Sometimes it's just that. I always say it's friends leading friends. It's the blind leading the blind. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And then when you do it, when you succeed, folks are there saying, oh, yeah, I knew you could do it. (laughs) So, of course. (laughs) Well, like, did you? Did you? Right. I know her. I got the text message. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, you know, what I tell people in your generation and then for actually everybody mm-hmm. you have to you have to shut out the naysayers and I was always it was always a stubborn streak about me you tell me that I can't do it I'm gonna find a way to do it and so I was so set on not doing local news you know anymore because I just did not want to do it I knew what I wanted to do and so I said, okay, I'm good. We're going to put all of our efforts into going in this direction. 
even though I'm telling them I'm going in this direction, I'm going to try my best to try to achieve this goal, no matter what people tell me. Yeah. And sometimes people are very well-meaning, you know, I put very well-meaning people in my family because they don't want you to get hurt. They don't want you to be disappointed, but I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And so I was going to try my best to achieve it. So did he drop the agent? (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, yeah, well, (laughs) yeah. So there were, there were, you know, yeah, a couple of agents and it's interesting. The agent at the time that I got the job at Access when he called and said, oh, Access Hollywood wants to interview you for a position. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to make it seem as though it was his efforts that got me the mm-hmm. job. But oh, I then know the guy from the talent bank that I had sent my tape to called me also and said, we sent your tape to Access Hollywood. And then Access Hollywood said, okay, we want to see her, who is her agent. And then they called the agent. And so the agent kind of took credit for it. But of course, that's their favorite thing to do. Yes, yeah, money for them. <laughs> it wasn't big. <laughs> yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. I'm going to get a little nitty gritty because this is something I'm really interested in. And partially some of the things that Amira and I talk about is like we're in corporate America. Corporate America is very white and often very male. And so it's one thing that once you get your foot in the door, okay, that's like a sigh of relief. But then it's the second thing is like, okay, this space is not used to navigating people who look like me or providing me with the tools or the nurturing that may be required to bring your full self to work. So I'm wondering after you got in front of access or you got in the door at access, were those rooms welcoming to you? Because I'm imagining and correct me if I'm wrong, but even, okay, now we have a black woman on set, everything down to the makeup, to the hair, to the clothes that you wear, the body that you're bringing in, that's probably all new to them. So was it a welcoming experience for you or was there a lot of learning and teaching that you had to do as well? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was welcoming at all. Unfortunately, you know, there were battles. Can we get somebody who's done black hair before? Can we you know, no, that's not my color foundation. Right. No, that that particular shot 
is very unflattering to the curves on my body. Exactly. Now that there's more conversation about it, it's a little bit easier. But back then it was more, you know, and Black women, you know, I, listen, I've been called difficult because I wanted somebody Ooh. there. I asked for a Black hairstylist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For people who did not understand that this wasn't being difficult, it was wanting the same opportunity that you had your white colleagues to look their best on that's what the ask is and too often black women are called difficult because they make the request for equality mm-hmm. in the workplace so yeah that was often a battle and you know when i look back you know there were some conversations that they could not have the same conversation today that they had with me back then, that it would not be okay. It wasn't okay then, but there weren't the ramifications of having that conversation or the repercussions of having that conversation as there are today. So I'm curious, like, what was the conversation? I can guess what it was, but like, do you remember something that you just, someone said to you that you look back and you're like, that was the worst thing? Like the audacity of this person. Oh, just being called difficult. Yeah. Being called difficult because you want a black hairstyles or you want to highlight Black artists more, Mm -hmm. uh, Black actors more, terminology that you use, you know, with certain actors and actresses that was not okay. Yeah. And so, yes, there was a lot of me trying to educate people on diversity and inclusion when many people in charge did not have any interest in being woke. Okay. I know. Yeah. Now it's a trend, baby. Oh, how the times have changed. (laughs) Yes, how the times have changed. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was definitely a challenge. So Kirby and I had to talk about this a lot because under our different umbrellas of the entertainment industry, like PR and development, we're often the only Black women in the room. And we talk about like feeling this weight of not only being true to yourself, but being true to like, they're going to see you as every single Black woman, no matter what. Like you are it. You are how Black women act in entertainment. You are how Black women act in media. So have you felt that weight? And if you have, like, how did you deal with it? Well, to me, I think what you're saying is that oftentimes what may be looked at as a failure is looked at as a failure for the entire Black community. Yes. That what I'm hearing you say? Mm -hmm. You know, if there's a Black show on the air and it doesn't do well, a network may say, oh, Black shows don't do well. Yes. Whereas if there's a white show on the air and it doesn't do well, it's not a condemnation of the race. It's more so this theme may not perform well for our audience. Right, exactly. And they do it, you know, we don't fail up, okay? We don't fail up. And so, yeah, I mean, you're seeing that, you know, we just had the Oscars and there was somebody who made the comment that was, oh, I see they're really, with all these Black winners, I see that they're really trying to be more diverse and having, and I'm thinking, this, understand what diversity and inclusion means. It means opening the door so that everyone can have the opportunity, because I covered the Oscars from 1999, when there were no Black nothing in any category. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> and for so many years, okay, so many years, and we just became used to it. It's 
you know, for many people, they think if black people win an Oscar, oh, it's because they're trying to be diverse and inclusive. But if white people win an Oscar, it's because of their talent. And that annoys me. And that is the problem. Yes. No, no. It's the, the point of diversity and inclusion is that you've ignored the talent of people of color. And so that's why we're having these conversations today and the movements that we're having today. It's about recognizing the people that you have made invisible for all of this time. Yes. Sean, what did those conversations look like back then? I feel like now, every time we're in these rooms and we're fighting for diversity, equity, and inclusion, we're fighting for accurate representation of various communities and types of people in our shows, on our air, on social media. What did those, when you're fighting back, back in a time when there wasn't a movement like we see today? I don't even know when the term diversity and inclusion started. When I was first on the scene, I don't remember that being a thing that anybody was trying to achieve. So back then, you weren't even saying, oh, we need diversity and inclusion. You were just saying, like, can I get a person of color? Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. So now that we're on the subject, a few months ago, her and I spoke to Kyla Pratt, and she shared about how her pregnancy was seen in the media versus her white counterparts and how hers, it was like, who was her baby daddy? They're not married, da da da. Whereas, like Blake Lively, they were like, "Oh, she's lovely and glowing and bubbly and da da da." As you're interviewing celebrities, is it pushed? Like, did you notice this discrepancy? I guess in the type of questions they were asked, and how did this brand change? Like, has the brand of black celebrities versus their white counterparts shifted, or is it still something where they like kind of interrogate them in a different way? You know, for me, the issue was the invisibility. Mm-hmm of Black celebrities and just not acknowledging them and not acknowledging their work many times was the issue. You know what? why that's so wild to me? It's because Black culture moves culture. Right. Like yes. that's where all the trends are set. Like that's who you follow next. That's why I'm so surprised that they're so invisible. Like how are you going to know who to copy in a year? <laughs> <laughs> And I think it definitely has gotten a lot better. Yeah. You know, I think all of us have this, um, well, my African-American colleagues in the entertainment business, I mean, they have countless stories about how, you know, Black entertainers are treated differently. Hopefully it has gotten better because there are people that do want to make change and positive change that are authentic about making these changes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always a battle because sometimes, you know, it is unintentional. It's just that, you know, there's a clip of a video clip of Toni Morrison, the author, Toni Morrison, Mm -hmm. that's online. And she's being interviewed by a white reporter. And the white reporter is saying to her, do you think that there will be a time when you come to write about white people? And Toni Morrison said, I have. And then the white reporter follows up with, but in a substantial way, will you do this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Toni Morrison says, you can't believe how powerfully racist that question is. Because it comes from a place of being in the center and being used to being in the center. That is the issue that 
I think is really important for us to understand because when we are, when we just, just at the Oscars yes, and we see a few, a handful of black people <laughs> win an Oscar yes, and then you have comments about, oh, they're trying to be diverse and they're, you know, you know, they're letting certain people win because they're black. Well, all this blah, blah, blah. That comes from a position of always being in the center. Meaning when all white people are winning, everything's fine. There's not an agenda. That's the norm. It's not a question. But then when there are black people are winning, it's, oh, it's about diversity and inclusion. It's about, this is about recognizing, if you're recognizing talent in Hollywood, then the door should be open for everyone to be recognized. And that's about, this is not about anyone being in the center. This is about the inclusion of all people. Yeah. And there was actually a recent UCLA study that came out that was speaking about how audiences are gravitating and yearning for more content that is representative of the world in which we live. Like if you need a study for it, boom, there it is. I didn't need a study to tell me that, but now we have one, so it cannot be ignored. I'm wondering, Sean, too, was there a different weight or responsibility? Because like you said, you were at Access Hollywood for 16 years. Did you feel a responsibility to pitch or bring forward certain narratives about Black people that they may not have even been aware of before? And they ask you this because, like Amira said, we are the only Black people on our teams. In fact, many times and in this industry, we're the only person of color on our teams, period. And there's this juxtaposition that Black women do have to balance and that you want to not always feel like you're the token person to make people aware of these stories or these narratives or these things that we should be highlighting. But at the same time, I do feel a little bit of a responsibility that when we do get Black projects, I want to work on it because I want it done the right way. But there's also that level of like, well, why don't I give it to someone else so that they can learn but they're going to come to me anyway as a resource. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, right. And we have, as Black people, we have carried this burden of wanting to teach everybody how not to be racist. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not my side job. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Every single day. We are trying, we're always trying to tell people how. I remember interviewing, um, I interviewed the cast of scandal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I interviewed them at the uh, television academy and I asked, uh, and, and Shonda Rhimes and I were talking backstage about this. And I said, okay, when she, when the, she gave me this, this explanation. And then when she told me she was, what she was going to say, I said, okay, great. I want you to say it exactly like that when we get on stage. And so I said, Shonda, I said, why don't we see more black people on TV? And she said, why don't you ask the people who are not putting Black people on TV, (laughs) why there aren't more Black people on TV? Because folks were constantly asking her, why? And she's like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Yes. Okay. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. So it's like, to me, it's part of the microaggressions that we face every single day. We've got this burden of racism. We've got the burden of teaching people about racism. We've got the burden of people saying, well, if you don't tell us 
about racism, then we're going to keep being right. Like mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's sometimes it's soul crushing. This is why we're so tired all of the time. Yeah. And, you know, it's time for, you know, when we, when, after George Floyd, we started talking about where are our white allies, where are white allies that are standing up and beating this drum with us. So anyway, so yeah, I mean, I can go on and on and on, but, but yeah, we're, we're constantly, we, we've taken the burden upon ourselves and should we do it? Absolutely. We should do it. I do feel a responsibility with the movies that I just executive produced at Lifetime. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to be doing more, hopefully. You know, my thing is I wanted to give Black people opportunities, you know, opportunities in front of and behind the camera. That's what it is for me. Yeah. The position that I'm in now, after having this, you know, this platform for so long, to give folks jobs, okay? Yes. When we had reached out to the actors, you know, many of the actors, they hadn't worked in a long time, even pre-pandemic. That's crazy. So, yeah. yeah so, so for me, it's about providing opportunities, opening the door, and being like that Shonda Rhimes. Like, listen, I'm already doing it. I'm already doing it. So that's what's important for me. You said the word white ally and I like had an immediate flashback because (laughs) I feel like, okay, we'll take us everyone back to like last summer, Droid Floyd happened. All of our white allies immediately went to social media, put up black boxes. They did tweets and some of them were getting called out for how toxic they were to the black people in their real lives. And I remember your tweet about Billy Bush and questioning his allyship. What was going on with that relationship in, in Access Hollywood? You know, it is uh, during this time since George Floyd, we have had really tough conversations. And one of the turning points has been for Black people is, you know, all of this that I kept inside and what I didn't say anything about or what I was fearful about saying something about. This is part of the you know, the, the, once again, I go back to microaggressions that we are hit with every single day. I always tell people, you can't dictate how a person handles their pain. Okay. So, you know, it was part of the national conversation, international conversation, the global conversation that we're having today. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think anybody is, you know, I, I don't think there is a person of color walking around today who has felt like, gosh, you know, I'm freer to say something today than I was, you know, a year ago or longer. I want to ask you a kind of a two part question from your personal perspective. You know, you made it very publicly clear that Billy wasn't an ally in the way that he should have been at the time when you guys were working together. So kind of wondering, what do you think in that time of you being a Black woman on set, what could he or should he have done to stand up for you in those rooms? And then in general, what does good allyship look like to you? Well, the first part of that question is something that I would discuss with the person that I, you know, was talking about. So that is something that I would discuss with him. Mm -hmm. But I think that what, good allyship looks like is 
understanding that, you know, putting up a black box one day, mm-hmm. putting up the hashtag Black Lives Matter one day. Performative. Yes. Check. You know, or doing that one off. Mm-hmm. That That's fine. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being active participants in stopping assault on people of color. That's what we're talking about talking about an everyday participation and understanding that may mean to to you, (laughs) your life is going to be a little bit different because you're not going to be in the center anymore. You're not a main character. Yes. (laughs) So that is, is what true allyship looks like. I agree with that because I have a lot of great coworkers at this company, but I much more appreciated those that came to me asking for, and and this isn't exactly quite right either. You know, Google and the internet is free. However, I had coworkers reach out to me like, they didn't do the performative stuff. I didn't need the black square. I had, who can I donate to? Are there resources that you can send me that I can learn a bit more about what's going on? Kirby, are you okay? And not just on the day, but I'm talking a week a month later checking in. And those were the things and those were the actions that really stood out for me. Of course, like I said, I shouldn't have to be the resource to send you links as to where to donate to, especially when something happens. It happens every day. It happens every hour. There's a new article. It feels like every hour on the hour now. But I agree with you there. And I think it's something important to call out because a lot of times we're surrounded by our white colleagues and I think they want to do the right thing, but they just don't know how. So I wanted to very publicly kind of put that out there and hear what your perspective was as someone who's not in this corporate space. Yeah. Once again, making a donation is a one-off. Exactly. That's a one-off. What can I post on social media? That's a Mm one-off. Yeah. What it looks like is, are you calling the police on a Black man that's walking? Yes. Or or is your family doing that, even though you may not be? When you're at the Thanksgiving table and your racist relative says something about whoever, are you standing up and saying, hold up, no, Uncle Bob, no, we're not going to have that. Or you cannot use that word. That is wrong. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It is, are you hiring people of color at your company? Yeah. In leadership positions? Okay. You know, are you supporting black businesses? Do you go to a black doctor? Once again, we don't need the, the hashtag and, and what look, oh, hey, everybody, look at this. You know, you need that day to day allyship. And especially because, let me tell you something, especially with the fan, I have talked to so many of my well meaning white friends. Girl, my father, I don't say anything to him because he's right in a He may be, he, I need me some money, you know, or I need, you know, him to support me or, you know, I, no, I don't say anything to my brother. I don't say, that's what you need to do. You need to And I think what bugs me the most about it is like, we can't get through to racist people. They need to talk to y'all. Exactly. They don't like me. Like they don't like me very openly. Like, you need to talk to your auntie. It's your job. So I'm happy that I think a few people I know are getting there. What I'm scared is they're using George Floyd, may he rest in peace, as a one-off. They're like, okay, well, he's going to jail. We checked that box, America, let's move on. Like, I think it made so many people uncomfortable that they're, like, ready to just move on from it. And like, no, I'm not going back there, baby. We're out of that year. No more. We can't go back. Right. 
Now, Sean, this is a really poor transition. However, we do want to get to a little bit of the fun stuff. You had mentioned you are now an executive producer on Lifetime. Yes. Yes. On an incredible, I want to call it an anthology series. Yeah. (laughs) So we've seen kind of lust and envy and wondering what is it like now being in that seat of power behind the scenes versus in front of the scenes, which you've been doing for so long. This has been a thrill for me, first of all, to partner with Bishop T.D. Jakes yes. and bring this series to the audience has been so, it, it's been a challenge. It's been exciting. It's something that I've had on my bucket list for a while. Mm-hmm. So I, back in 2016, it was a year after I had left Access Hollywood, I optioned a series of books by author Victoria Christopher Murray, who's an incredible author. And she told me she was writing The Seven Deadly Sins. Mm-hmm. And the a friend of mine who used to work at Essence Magazine, Patrick Henry Bass, was the books editor at Essence Magazine. He had gotten the galley of lust at the first book in the series. And he called me up and he said, Sean, this book, Lust, is so good. You need to call Victoria and option the entire series. And so I called her and I said, hey, you know, I'd like to try to turn this into uh, a movie series. And she said, okay, great. So we did the deal. And I started pitching it around town. I pitched it to Lifetime. I pitched it to Takes. I pitched it to other studios, other producers, networks. And everybody was interested, but there were no takers at the time. So fast forward, Bishop Jakes did a partnership with Lifetime and he was looking for other projects. And so they came back to me and said, hey, Sean, that project that you pitched to us a year ago, do you still have it? The Seven Deadly Sins? And I said, yes. And so, well, we'd like to do it uh, at Lifetime. I was like, okay, great. No problem. <laughs> so that's how it all started. And I, I just tell people that a lot of times when you think you're getting a no, it's actually a not yet. Exactly. So it's a not yet. We can relate to that not yet, Sean, because it took <laughs> us two years to get this podcast on the air. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> yeah. So you get it. Yeah. Yeah. And now here it is. Um, and and so, yeah. And we started uh, filming during the pandemic, which was a challenge. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we got it done. And so we had lust first and then envy and I, I'm just so excited. So hopefully we'll be doing the rest of the deadly sins. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. Name the seven deadly sins. If you don't change, don't Google, don't do anything. You know what? Ooh. America's Next Top Model prepared me for this. Go for it. I know exactly what you're talking about, Mira. We got wrath. We got gluttony. We got envy. Uh, lust. Lust. Go. Oh, Okay, I only remember those four shoots. I'm letting you know. I don't know. I really, truly do not know. I remember the shoot so well. Not off the top of my head. Don't Google. Lust. Okay. Okay. We need a hint. You said lust, greed. Did you say greed? I didn't say greed. Okay. Lust, greed. What else did you say? I said gluttony. Gluttony. Um, Wrath. We have envy. Envy. Yeah. I remember. remember, You said envy already. I'm trying to remember these photo shoots. I don't know, Sean, we need help. We need help. Okay. You said lust. Yep. Envy. Greed. Gluttony. Gluttony. Greed. Wrath. Wrath. Pride. Oh, yeah. Pride. Sloth. Oh, yeah. Okay. I do sloth. Yes. Yeah. 
Sloth and Pride. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I knew exactly that America's Next Top Model <laughs> photo shoot that you were referencing. I was thinking of like, all oh, the burger with the red. Yeah. I was saying Greg Green with Envy. I was like, thank you, Tyra. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. what ha- for your these films, and you are working with the incredible T.D. Jakes. I did hop into your clubhouse a few weeks oh, ago. Yeah. I did. <laughs> uh, which is funny. We're talking about a little bit about manifestations, and I didn't know that we were speaking to you yet. So yeah. it makes complete sense. But what's kind of your approach as an executive producer now? We had read that, you know, the next thing you put on your vision board a couple of years ago was executive producer and you're here now. So what's your approach? Well, you know, I, like I said, I just want to be in a position to give opportunities to people of color. And it's been a real thrill. I mean, it's been a tough journey because it's been a long journey. And so hopefully now the door is open now that I do have this new title as executive producer to be able to bring, you know, great entertainment to the audience. I'm always interested in stories where women are the center, Mm -hmm. whatever they're going through. I like the stories of, you know, redemption journeys where, you know, you go, oh no, what is she doing? And then (laughs) there is, you know, a lesson at the end of the story. So I love that. That's a classic Lifetime movie. Sure is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's what I plan to do. Um, Hopefully, like I said, once again, we'll be doing some, you know, some more movies with Lifetime. And uh, because I'm telling you, Lifetime, they've been they they've got some good stuff over there. Been stepping up to the plate. So I'm glad that I'm in the family. They bring the heat. We're so happy to have you. When you said bringing in more people of color into our industry, that's like the main reason I want to stay on this side of the industry. Mm-hmm. Like I remember a distinct interview with Issa Rae where she was pitching to like a white dev executive on the network and they didn't get the story. And I was like, crap, that's what we're missing. Yeah. We need people on the inside of the industry as well to be like, oh, I see you. There are other people who will see you too. Right. Yeah. But I guess in that same vein, Amira, because like Amira works in development and we see her and talk about her giving notes all the time, but you're bringing these black stories to a network that is getting better at telling more diverse stories. Yes. But it's still a very white network. What has that kind of getting notes back from a network like Lifetime been like? First of all, it's been wonderful. Akita. Oh, has, she's great. Yes. She did Mahalia too. Yes. Our, our mm-hmm. notes too. And, you know, she gives great notes and she definitely understands the journeys that these characters are going on. So I'm very grateful to her to be able to, you know, bounce some ideas off of as yeah. she and I talk all the time. And, you know, I get guidance from her about, you know, what kinds of things work. So, uh, and you want the stories to be authentic, even though, you know, for TV, it might be like hyped up a little bit, but you still, for a bit, you know, who hasn't experienced envy during their lives, who hasn't experienced some type of lust during their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so hopefully uh, you, I got a lot of great feedback and, you know, hopefully we'll be doing some more. That's awesome. It also does show the importance of representation inside as well, because it's it's a total difference when you feel seen by someone that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I was happy to be a part of the broader focus campaign. Yes. Yep. It's a great initiative. Open more doors for, yes, for women and having story. And once again, you know, when you think about it, lust and envy, those weren't black stories. They were universal stories. So being able to see be seen in a way where, you know, our lives are representative of all lives, you know, that's very, very important. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was really fun. And, uh, you know, hope to be bringing you some more. Yes. Bring them over. We're ready. <laughs> now that we know the seven deadly sins. I yeah. know. I tired me so shamed at me. I feel so bad. <laughs> it's okay, girl. I couldn't even have your back. I was useless in that moment. <laughs> You have so many incredible initiatives and foundations and things that you work within centering women and making sure women are taken care of. And you're also big on manifesting. So we also like to give our guests an opportunity to say, what's next? Brag about yourself, all of the incredible things you have going on and hope to have going on in the future. Well, one of the things that I always, you know, love to talk about is my foundation, the Sean Foundation for Girls. Yes. And I founded the nonprofit in 2016. And my parents always taught me, God gives you a platform, use it to give back. And that's what I do. So what we do is we support girls in five key areas, which are represented by the acronym of my name, SHA. Well, S is for STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, A is health, A is arts, U is unity, and N is neighborhoods. And so if there's a nonprofit that is doing work in one of those five key areas, uh, we would possibly be a resource for them. And so we've been doing a lot of great work in empowering girls uh, because this is about leveling the playing field for our girls, giving them the resources that they need to go out and succeed. So when I'm not working, you know, when I'm not working on my movies, that's where I'm putting all of my energy. And so if you want to find out more about the Sean Foundation for Girls, you can go to seanfoundationforgirls.org mm-hmm. and see what we're doing. If you want to support, there is a page to do that. And, um, you know, we're, we're out here trying to change the world for our girls. Yes. Changing it. Yes. <laughs> we love that. We love to see it. We love to hear it. We love to support it. So we do end every podcast the same way. We like to ask every guest a different iteration of this question. For you, we have, I love my Black because. Let's see. I love my Black because it represents resilience. It represents royalty. Yes. It represents love and it represents compassion because you cannot have been through what we have been through and not have compassion for other people. Agreed. Amen. Sean, thank you so much for being here. You are so impressive. Yeah, you are. (laughs) You do so much and you give us the energy and the strength to keep going. So thanks for sitting down with us and giving us your time. Thank you for having me, ladies. Of course. Of course. Anytime. Yes, literally anytime. We only touched the surface today. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Table is Ours is produced by us, Kirby Dixon and Amira Lawali. This episode was also produced by McKamey Lynn and Richard White and edited by Melissa Kaplan. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. The Table is Ours was created by A&E. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.